Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I catch up with Sergey Gorbanov from Axelar. We revisit the topic of bridges and chat about what led him to work on interoperability. We then talk about the problems that Axelar is trying to solve, how it compares to existing solutions, and what's next for the project. This is one in a series of bridge and interoperability episodes that I plan to do for the next few months, so I hope you enjoy. Before we kick off, I want to just highlight the ZK Jobs Board for you. If you are looking to jump into ZK professionally, I want to remind you to head over to the ZK Jobs Board to find job posts from some of the top teams working in ZK. Find the next project or team you want to work with. I also want to encourage teams who are hiring to use the Jobs Board to find your next hires. We have great teams like Alio, Anoma, and Mina already there, so be sure to add your jobs as well. You should also check out our link tree. We have put together a list of a lot of the channels that we have. We are adding to it. But if you want to jump into ZK, this is probably a good place to start. So now Tanya, the podcast producer, will tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon Zero. Polygon Zero is a layer two scaling solution for Ethereum. What separates Polygon Zero from other ZK scaling solutions is the power of Plonky2, a groundbreaking prover system which generates ZK proofs faster than any other existing tech. Plonky2 supports efficient recursive proof generation, allowing Polygon Zero to scale horizontally, meaning the throughput of the protocol is not limited by the weakest nodes on the network, but only by the total compute available. Visit polygon.technology to learn more about Polygon Zero and other Polygon solutions. So thank you again, Polygon Zero. Now here is Anna's interview with Axelar. Today, I'm chatting with Sergey Gorbanov from Axelar. Welcome to the show, Sergey. Hey, Anna. Great being here. I do want to share this. The ZK Validator is an investor in Axelar. And what is interesting about uh, when we actually did that investment, for me at least, that was, I think, the first time I saw a project that talked about this like multi-asset bridging technology. And I know you don't call yourself a bridge, so we'll get to the difference there. But it back then, like, or when I first heard about it, it was for me the first time I even had like really heard that concept. Um, I know since then there's been a few more that have kind of like entered the space with a similar thing. I want to get into sort of the competitive landscape. And just generally, I'm actually doing like multiple episodes right now on these types of solutions. So I'm planning on doing like one a month. So I'm very, very excited to be digging into this one to Axelar, especially since I think this will be the first time I revisit since we spoke like some time ago. What about you? Where are you coming from originally? Like what ecosystem did you start from? Good. So I guess I started from a technologist ecosystem. How about that? Okay. <laughs> and a cryptographer <laughs> did ecosystem. Did you come from <laughs> math then? You came more from academia potentially? So I did a lot of things, I would say, you know, prior to get into blockchain full time. I originally was very passionate about security and uh, kind of practical security. Um, so kind of concentrated on that during my undergrad. I loved networking. So I worked on software-defined networking. We were building like distributed uh, controllers kind of 10, 12 years ago with a, a couple of professors and students at the University of Toronto. And then uh, I wanted to study formal cryptography, right? So I went to grad school, you know, did my PhD at MIT. Um, and then by the end of it, I uh, was a little bit bored from doing, again, pure theoretical research. So I wanted to do something more applied, uh, started to play with blockchains, uh, you know, some of the early designs behind Algrand. And um, with uh, Silvio and a couple other students, we helped to uh, take that project from, you know, research to the market and uh, taking uh, the platform live. Wow, wait, so you were one of the early Algorand folks then you like were there, like, w- were you part of that original team then? So yeah, originally yeah, the project started at uh, me and Silvio doing some research at MIT. Um, you know, when I was finishing my grad school, then I joined uh, University of Waterloo for a couple of years. So um, the research around Algorand continued. So Silvio involved um, a lot of other students, kind of a faculty, to help design, uh, continue shaping the protocol. I think it's been through like four or five iterations, and uh, you know, eventually we got together as a small technical team in early, I believe, 2018. 
Um, that's when initial funding was attracted to the project. And um, yeah, we kind of took that to the market. What was the impetus to break out of there? Like you'd been working in this project, you know, now you're doing something that I guess could be used together with what the, some of the work you did maybe, but yeah, what, what prompted the move? So as we're building Algorand and as we um, shipped it to the market, one of the first questions that kept on coming up is how do we bootstrap that ecosystem, right? And bootstrapping really came to bring in liquidity, bring in users, mm -hmm. bring in uh, some of the existing applications to the Algorand platform, right? And in the early days when you ship something technically better without a community, that's a very hard problem to solve. And so we were looking for different ways to connect Algorand with other ecosystems, you know, nothing that we could really apply uh, and uh, connect it that easily. And um, at the same time, you know, myself and my co-founder, Yorgos, we saw a lot of other just amazing projects being developed in parallel, right? Like Cosmos, I mean, um, big fans like Polkadot, right? Like Avalanche, Solana, Nier, and the list goes on. Everybody had their own take on consensus. Everybody had their own take of what smart contracts should look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it was clear to us that if the ecosystem continues to grow, all those ecosystems are going to have different applications, going to have users, and they're all going to have to talk to each other one day. And uh, you know, we wanted to bring this connectivity to continue accelerating the uh, ecosystem and, and, and help compose all these different applications. Hmm. I mean, you just mentioned Cosmos, though, and like Cosmos has IBC kind of, I think it's a pretty early part of the project. Like, I think that was announced quite early on. Why wouldn't you have sort of pursued something like that, like a glue between networks like IBC? I mean, so IBC, I think, is a great protocol, right? Uh, and I think it works quite well. It's very technically hard to apply to different consensus mechanisms, so, you know, practically for us, like at Algorand, to apply something like IBC, we would have to pretty much rewrite most of the consensus because it works very differently. You have kind of randomized selection that allows validators to be selected from, you know, anybody in the, in the world in some sense. And so IBC requires you to have very effective and efficient, like, light client implementations that need to be communicating across all of the different chains that you want to interact with. Right. And so if you want to interact with you know, Cosmos ecosystem, with um, you know, Solana, with uh, you know, Avalanche, you're talking about different consensus mechanisms that have to exchange light clients. You're talking about potentially different smart contract languages that need to support these light client implementations. And then you have to maintain these implementations every time you want to do an upgrade. And then you have to you know, uh, recreate these connections all the time. So while you know, from a security perspective, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great protocol and has a lot of advantages as an engineer and, you know, especially some of the background around networking and things like that. I just knew that the, the friction that was going to continue, uh, we're going to continue seeing to, to scale these protocols. That being said, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, right? I think it's a, um, I mean, I think it's still early. We're still building some of these kind of core pipes and connectivity tissues and learning what works, what doesn't. Mm. Okay, so let's talk then about this emergence then of Axelar. So I guess you left the org, started a new company. What did you set out to do at that beginning point? I mean, originally we were actually thinking about some simple applications that would be great to build cross-chain. So for instance, things like DEXs, right? Decentralized exchanges. Mm -hmm. um, great use case, you know, right now, uh, at that time when we were thinking about it, uh, Things like Uniswap were coming to life, right? Lots of traction. So it was a very nice early use case for the blockchain ecosystem. And uh, we thought, well, it would be so much better if it's, it's, if it's cross-chain enabled, right? So being able to interact and swap assets from one ecosystem for an asset of another ecosystem, um, that would be amazing. That's the dream, yeah. Yeah, but what we realized is that to build an application like that, you're going to have to roll out so much infrastructure in parallel. Right. And then every single time you want to build an application that's cross-chain enabled, you're going to have to reinvent and reinvent this infrastructure and you know, whatever you're doing. And so it was clear that there was a, an infrastructure gap that just has to be solved with good, robust communication protocols, good, robust, you know, relaying services, fee services, you know, interoperability stacks. And uh, that would enable and empower thousands and millions of applications down the line. Um, and, um, you know, to us, that was Super exciting, I think, right? Uh, working on the infrastructure, which uh, we've been doing for years, and uh, at the same time applying it to scale the whole ecosystem, like 
what could you ask for more, right? <laughs> <laughs> cool. But so let's talk about this question of of what you call yourselves, because I think I've you've been lumped definitely together with Bridges. Um, but I have heard, I think in even like a talk we we did like for the ZKV Privacy and Cosmos like previous online event, I think you you did mention this distinction. You see yourselves not as a bridge technology. Tell me something about this distinction. Good. So I think on the high level, the way to think about Accelerator is a, it's a decentralized overlay network that's been designed sort of from the ground up to deliver Web3 interoperability. Okay. And so I think the basic core three properties that we're trying to implement at the network transport layer are things like universal routing, universal translation of messages as you go from like one ecosystem to another, right? And strong and robust security properties that um, the ecosystem needs in order to uh, facilitate cross-chain communication, mm. right? And I think, you know, if you look at bridges, most of them been sort of rolled out as a one-off ad hoc solutions to solve a specific pain point, like transfer an asset from one ecosystem to another, and it sort of stops there, right? Um, and I think what we're trying to do is build uh, kind of a series of uh, mega highways in some sense um, that would enable us to connect millions of chains down the line. And that requires a very different, you know, engineering and infrastructure approach uh, so you can continue scaling. You sort of mentioned like routing messages. So this is a distinction between XLR and some of the other bridge solutions. Last month, we did an episode with Gravity Bridge, and theirs is primarily token transfer. We talked a bit about messaging. And I wondered, like, when you say messages, is this like, DAP calls, like what, what are those messages? What do they look like? And why are they, are they more complicated to translate than a, like a straight up token transfer? Good, great question. So um, when I say, I guess, messages, yeah, I'm really referring to an arbitrary payload that you can pass from one chain to another, right? Okay. And that payload can really encode any information that you want to be executed. Okay. A token transfer is a specific type of, you know, request that you can mm -hmm. transfer from a source chain to a destination chain, that request would encode information like, I locked my token here, could you please mint you know, the corresponding token on this other chain for me, right? To execute that request, you need to you know, finalize it on the source chain, right? You need to validate it. You need to mm -hmm. create a message that's posted on the destination chain that says that this request has actually been validated, right? So you can trust it. And then you execute that call. Um, so I think that's a very simple use case for interoperability, but I think we want to go beyond that. In some sense, what we want to do is we want to be kind of a, a Turing complete platform, right? Where you can build applications uh, that are just as rich and powerful as you were to build them on a single chain, right? So you can encode arbitrary payload, NFT transfer, you know, contract calls, lending and borrowing applications, and you can include that as an arbitrary payload and get, you know, the underlying infrastructure to securely deliver it to the destination chain and execute. Is that a harder ask? Is that like a harder engineering feat to actually make it so generalized and not just focused on that one use case of tokens? Um, I mean, I'm not sure if it's, you know, harder from an engineering perspective. I think it really requires you to think how to build the right system that scales, right? And how okay. do you build the right system that, you know, when new connections are added, you know, you're not creating like fragmentation across the ecosystem, right? Um, how do you enable like universal routing across all these functionalities? So when a new chain is added, you want to make sure that other chains are sort of aware of the path from the source to the new destination chain without too much, you know, engineering or interaction on the back end. Um, so, so it's things like that. And then, you know, definitely, I would say it actually helps improve overall security, right? When you deconstruct serve the transport layer of interoperability with application-specific use cases that allows you to focus and say, okay, I don't care what the messages are. I need that infrastructure to be as secure as possible. And then layers above it, in some sense, get to decide what to do with that information. Or they, re they read those that info. They actually decipher it. So it sort of doesn't matter what's in there. It's just past. Yeah. And I think a good like analogy is like think about um, how you build on a single chain, right? You have a consensus where you can, you know, deploy an arbitrary smart contract and you can write your instructions on top of it. When validators execute and sequence consensus messages, they just execute whatever you tell them, right? But the consensus itself is not 
specific to the application. I mean, I think Cosmos is a sort of an exception, right, where the whole stack is designed, where at the consensus layer, you're sort of validating, you know, the messages. But, uh, you know, a lot of the other platforms almost Turing complete in some sense, right, where the consensus just uh, sequences the messages and creates the order and structure. And then you can write an arbitrary logic on top of it. And you're doing it that way. You're kind of, yeah, you're not looking so deeply at the use case with the use of the actual data. I mean, for some use cases, you can do more interesting things if you look at the message in the payload for token transfers, you know, in particular. Uh, so we enabled um, one of these properties that they call like translation between like IBC token transfers and EVM token transfers, where you actually have to look at the message, you know, uh, in order to encode one format to another. But I think of those things as sort of optimizations uh, in some sense that allow you to do uh, more at the network layer. When it comes to some kinds of information, though, like, do you need some sort of translator on either side? Like, some blockchains just work quite differently. So, like, are you acting as that translator between them? Or are you kind of, do you need to have access to some, almost like the lexicon of each one, and then you're, yeah, doing some sort of translation? Great question. So, I think this is one of the core properties that you know, Axel Network provides at the network layer, right, which is translation of different messages. So, you know, as, as an example, when you uh, send a message from a Cosmos ecosystem that is, let's say, an IBC token transfer, then at Axel Network layer, we can take that message, we can translate it to a message that needs to be delivered to an EVM chain and executed there. So the network serves as this translation layer. Now, you're right that every ecosystem speaks its own sort of language, right? Potentially has a smart contract. So you have to have this translation. And then you ask yourself a question, where's this translation going to happen? And there's pretty much two places where it can happen. It either happens at the application logic, right? At the, think of it like almost like at the smart contract close to your application, right? Or it has to happen somewhere in the transport network layer. Yeah. One check here would, like if you did it the first way, would that be basically like, almost like a light client on one side that does, I don't know if it'd be called a light client, but some smart contract on one side that like gets it prepared in the format that you'd need on the other? Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, either on the source or on destination chain, you have a smart contract that takes a message, you know, decodes it, right? Deconstructs different payload and then interprets it and, and, and then parses that, right? Uh, okay. So yeah, that's if you want to do it almost like at the at the exit and entrance points, right? And uh, so if we do some of this functionality, you know, at the network layer, which allows us to be a lot more efficient, a lot cheaper, right? Because, you know, you don't have to pay like huge gas costs for doing these translation mm. layers and allows us to continue scaling and add in more routes in a uniform way while just composing and building on the networking effects of the translation, right? So it's not, it's, you change the model from having a peer-wise translations and peer-wise connections, right? To a model where everything is down at the route and transport layer, it's sort of in a more uniform and, and uh, cohesive fashion. Something that was highlighted kind of early on that was special about the work that Axler was doing was the use of threshold cryptography. Is that what makes this more efficient or cheaper? Is that is that the secret sauce or is that used for some other reason? I mean, it's definitely one of the ways, right? Um, I mean, the way we designed the whole system is to allow us to continue, you know, scaling and making it cheaper and making it more efficient to deliver the messages, right, from one ecosystem to another. And so the cryptography component is almost a plug and play component on top of the Axel network, right? So we can plug in threshold, we can plug in multi-sigs, you know, I think there's, a, uh, we've done a lot of work on like standardization of BLS signatures, which I think is going to be, you know, quite powerful for uh, some of the chains that will support, you know, BLS, uh, and you can you kind of continue down the line. And yeah, all of those primitives, they have their own trade-offs, some of them more, you know, efficient, some of them are, uh, you know, have non-interactive uh, compression mechanisms, some of them are interactive, but the goal is to continue building the system and continue scaling it so that the translation, the message passing functionality can be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. And, uh, you know, there's mm -hmm. a whole set of optimizations you can, uh, you can do it. Th threshold cryptography is definitely one of them. But you just mentioned a few different types. So you sort of mentioned the sort of multi-sig version, but that makes me think it might be good for us to explore actually what is happening under the hood in Axelar. Like, are there a bunch of different pairs that you've created that are like moving between the two different 
two different chains? Or is it, because when you say that a multi-sig, I think of the more primitive bridge bridges that do exist today, which is like a multi-sig connecting two networks, basically locking funds on one side to mint funds on the other and then burning them and bringing them back and unlocking them. But Axelar doesn't do that, right? Or is it like every single connection has, you know, a unique bridge format? So let me I kind of take a step back, right? And like, let's let's talk through high-level architecture, right, of the Axel sure, network. Sure. So the, the high-level architecture is the following. Um, on different chains that we're connecting, we have, you know, a notion of a gateway account, right? Or a gateway smart contract, think of it that way, okay? So, you know, on EVM chains, that's a solidity contract. Mm-hmm. So what this contract exposes is a certain API that as an application you can call to deliver a message to a destination chain that you want to talk to. Okay. Now, underneath all of this is the set of Axler validators. Okay. It's a it's a permissionless set of validators built around Cosmos SDK where anybody can join and participate as a validator. And so collectively what the validators do is that they observe these uh, bridge accounts, right? And they observe messages that are posted to them. Once they see that a message is posted, they execute a consensus to reliably, you know, verify that message and then process it. Process it here means, you know, figure out where it needs to go. So that's routing. Translation, if it's a message that needs to be sent for an IBC chain, you actually have to take it and translate it to an IBC packet, for instance, right? And then uh, serve execution. And the execution means that they collectively authorize a corresponding message to be marked at the destination gateway as approved by the Axel network, right? And so okay. this this last step can uh, is where again, like you need a consensus of a, and a majority of the validators to approve that message. And to do that, you can you know you can have them either post their individual signatures or you can run you know threshold cryptography to generate one signature collectively. But it all serves the same purpose, where the majority of validators reach a consensus and the threshold of them authorizes the message. And now it gets mm. it can be delivered to the destination, you know, chain or gateway. And from there, applications look at the gateway and say, "Has Axel approved this message?" Right? Yes, Axel validators have approved the message. The majority of them have, you know, co-signed it or posted individual signatures or one signature. And then, therefore, I'm going to go and execute it. So that's the high level architecture. So from an application perspective, you now get to build your application on any chain that you like. Right, you pick your home base, what I call, and from there you get to you know interact with other chains by just talking to the gateway. So you ah. don't have to learn Axel stack, you don't have to understand how relaying is done or anything. You just uh, talk to the gateway. That's a regular you know solidity message. Or if you're in a Cosmos chain, you will talk like IBC and uh, go from there. When you talk about these validator sets, it just made me think like, is there MEV on the on these? things as well. Is that also where the threshold cryptography could come in handy to like prevent because it's hidden a little bit? I mean, at least I know, what is it? Threshold decryption used in the context of MEV, MEV, but I don't know if that's how you're thinking about it. Um, That's not how we're thinking about it. Like here we're using the threshold signatures, I guess, for validation, but you are right that threshold cryptography can help you against other types of attacks, right? Um, you know, you know, sequence a, a set of messages without validators seeing what the messages are, like through a threshold decryption. We actually have uh, kind of a, a short paper coming on this shortly, how to do it like more effectively with things like identity-based mm. encryption. Uh, you know, you get to save a lot of traffic at the network layer, and um, you know, you can definitely do it. And I, I think just having uh, validators that have secret keys that you can do something uh, cleverly with opens up all kinds of optimizations of this transport layer and better security down the line. Got it. But back to MEV, do you, are you worried about that? Is that something to worry about? Am I worried about it? Uh, I mean, I am, but it doesn't prevent me from sleeping at night in some sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's uh, okay. So kind of a step in back, right? Um, to, to do the interoperability the right way, it's actually very important to make sure that you don't have order dependence of the messages as you're moving them around. Okay, why would that be a problem? Good, so the the point is that whenever you're talking about very different environments, 100 things can go wrong, (laughs) okay? And then if you have a system that has synchronous communication across different hubs of connectivity, 
then there's just so many places where things could go wrong and break. And you're going to be stuck mm -hmm. without a system that, does, that doesn't make progress. So the right way of doing this is to design a system that in some sense has, think of it, um, kind of a IP or UDP level of message passing, right? So these are kind of a protocols on the, on the internet where you don't have a lot of properties in terms of the ordering of those messages and how they arrive. But on top of it, you can build application-specific protocols that have stronger properties, right? So for instance, you can have protocols that have sequence numbers that only make sure that before the messages are played on the destination chain, they need to arrive at a certain sequence at the source chain, right? Mm. But all of that you can build as application layer protocols on top of the you know, infrastructure that needs to remain robust and, uh, you know, secure. And so if you start mixing these things up, which is, I think a lot of projects have been doing, you're going to run into all kinds of security issues and all kinds of, you know, fault tolerance uh, problems that you're going to have to deal with. So you want to keep it decoupled and then an application layer continue building this more sophisticated protocols, almost like TCP on top of, you know, UDP IP type of things, right? Or HTTP, which gives you encryption on top of unreliable, uh, unreliable communication. And so, so that's at least the way I think it needs to be approached for the blockchain space. Otherwise, we're going to be mixing things up and running into the security issues for forever. But I think what you're saying here is like that sort of MEV would be like on either side of the like on either side of Axler, right? Like when you're moving funds from one chain to another, you could be like front running or doing something. I don't know what it is, but could there be within Axler? any issues like within the validator set like is there any benefit to a validator putting forward or like i guess it's hard in proof of stake but like <laughs> is there is there any game that could be played on the validator side within axelar in this context um uh, potentially i mean i have to think a little bit more but those are the things that you can protect against you know using like threshold uh, uh encryption and decryption techniques so i guess on the axel network i'm not too worried about this i'm more worried about now this multi-chain interaction right where you can have yeah. potentially messages from different you know source chains that get you know uh delivered to the destination chain and you can have all kinds of you know race conditions between them and all kinds of mev yeah so, so so i think that would be a lot more complicated to protect against than like on the axel network which i think is pretty straightforward got it what is the speed of this movement across in the case of axelar you sort of mentioned that it's fast but i'm wondering a direct multi-sig one-to-one like chain to chain with a multi-sig on either side seems like it would be the fastest it might be expensive because you'd have to like unlock on one side especially if it's like ethereum with very high gas prices but is there any sort of delay or lag by going through this kind of system um i mean not not really right uh, i mean i think in, in that's in that case kind of a the performance of multi-sig and you know kind of centralized implementations and the performance of Axelar will be pretty com uh, comparable because what you need to do, you need to make sure the request on the source chain is finalized, right? So that's subject to the rules on the source chain. Um, so if it's, it has instant finality, you know, you wait, let's say for five seconds, right? Or for one second. From there, you need this set of validators to process this message and, you know, translate it or execute it for the destination chain. For the Axola case, you know, it is built around the Cosmos SDK. So we have kind of five second block finality, right? So it's uh, kind of pretty efficient and you can do things, you know, in an optimal way, maybe, you know, in a couple blocks, right? Um, and then from there, you just take the message and you post it on the destination chain and there you're subject to the, you know, latencies of the destination chain. I think as all of the systems are going to be improved and like the latency go down, um, you're effectively adding, you know, another hop of a proof of stake network in the middle, um, which mm -hmm. I think can be can be reduced. And, uh, you know, down the line, definitely we're looking at uh, kind of sub-second finalities. So one question that came up on a previous episode, Tarun, actually Tarun was supposed to be on this one, but we moved it around and he unfortunately couldn't be here. But I know, I feel like he would ask this question, which is, Say you're bridging some stable coins to, I don't know, Solana yeah. or something. And other bridging technologies, other interoperable kind of pools are also bridging their own synthetic stablecoin over to Solana. Now you have like the same ones, but like, I mean they have different names, but you're kind of dealing with like the same underlying assets. What are you thinking about with that? Because I know this is a space that people are kind of worried about, like potentially they're being 
I don't know if it's like just crazy arbitrage or if there's some attack somehow in there. I, I'm curious to to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, so I think it's a kind of a general problem of kind of fragmentation, right? And uh, liquidity fragmentation where you can have a situation where you have multiple assets that represent potentially the same thing, right? But yeah. they call differently, they have different contract addresses and so on and so forth. And they could have different liquidity. Different liquidity. Could, I guess could yeah. affect the price. Of course, Like would absolutely. you almost be able to arbitrage stable coins, even though they should be all close to the same amount if one is... Actually, how would that work? If one was more rare, if one was like had lower liquidity, would its peg go, would it break upwards I mean, like a stable coin? When you have lower liquidity, I mean, one of the examples is that if you uh, then uses like an ADEX pool, right, that users mm-hmm. are going to have to tolerate more slippage, right? Uh, that's a very, oh, okay. very, very simple kind of example. One of our, um, you know, investors actually, uh, Steve McKean, he recently wrote an article of what happens when you have this liquidity fragmentation across ecosystems and what is the benefit of unifying it and and, uh, kind of merging it together, right? And so I think there he actually very clearly demonstrates some of this precise kind of a points where if you have different liquidity pools, if they're smaller liquidity pools, then users suffer at the end of the day, right? And so what you want to end up having is like unifying them in some sense. So there's a deeper pool and users can, uh, you know, pay lower transaction fees and, and have lower slippage, right, in this in this mm. process. So going back to your question um, of liquidity fragmentation, what do we think about it? And, uh, you know, what are some of the approaches to deal with it? So A, I think actually a, an important question that we'll be answering over the coming years as we get robust interoperability and more general message passing is whether an asset will go to a compute environment or a compute environment will come to assets. Mm. Okay. So think of it this way, you know, right now we're moving, you know, tokens back and forth through these centralized bridges for the most part uh, that we're moving assets, right? Uh, But you can do it the other way around where you can have a program right? Uh, a smart contract code. And if you need yeah. to execute something with respect to these assets, you make a call, right, to a chain where there's a deepest liquidity of this asset. And then that call mm-hmm. gets executed on that chain. The state can be reflected there and the state can be propagated to other smart contract or, you know, other users on different chains. And they all get a unified view of that, um, of that state. So I think as we get robust interoperability stacks. And as we get this general message passing, this would be one of the questions. And I think there are various trade-offs depending on how you design an application to either move an asset or move the compute closer to the asset. Would it be like you'd have one high liquidity asset? Let's use like a, it could maybe still be a synthetic, but it's some sort of like, for now, it would be like a, I don't know if there is already this XUD, USD, XUS. Is that yeah. going to be yours, by the way? Is it going to be the, is that the name of that? <laughs> I, I think we're now adding a prefix AXL <laughs> to our Okay, AXL, not X. Yeah. Um, let's call it like ZK. So it's like the ZK USD. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is theoretical. So if there's a ZK USD pool that's high, like there's a lot of liquidity in there. The idea here is that instead of trying to move it over to the different ecosystems, you keep it there, right? Like you keep it on that chain, in that format, in the largest pool possible. But if if you wanted to interact with it, you'd send messages over this chain. But that's not how it is right now. Like that's, that's not, not yeah. how it works. It's not because so, there's, like, there's no interoperability right now across the ecosystems, right? <laughs> you know, no, but, but right now what's happening is like you are sending the tokens around. Do you think that there will be that there will actually be a move towards just having the single pool on one chain that's like that? Is, is that is that sort of a prediction or is that something you're actually seeing movement towards? Because I think it's going the opposite direction right now, right? Like right now, tokens are getting sent all over and everyone's creating their own synthetic. Yeah, so I do think it's going to get sort of unified and abstracted away from the users, okay? And I, and, I, and I think there are various ways of doing this. I think, you know, I don't think I would predict that, you know, there's going to be one asset on, you know, on, the, on that chain and you have the deepest liquidity and it's, no, it's not available anywhere yet. But I think depending on the use case and depending on the application, one model or the other could make more sense, right? So, yeah. so, so, so let, let me give you like one example. Suppose you have an NFT, right, uh, on Solana, and you want to take a loan against it on Avalanche, okay? So in that case, maybe the loan that you want is in the most liquid stable coin on Avalanche. Let's mm-hmm. call it, you know, I don't know, UST, for example, okay? Um, but your NFT, you know, lives on, you know, on, on Solana. So what you can do is you can, 
you know, lock it in a contract on Solana. You can deliver a message to Avalanche that says, you know, this NFT has been locked. This is the user's address. Please give a loan to this user against this NFT. This is the duration of the loan and like all the parameters, and this is their address. So in this case, you don't have to transfer the asset. The asset remains where it is, but you just pass enough information and you obtain, you know, an asset that you des deserve or desire on a different chain, right? Uh, so this is one example where you don't actually have to move it. You just need to move sufficient information about it. And I think for different use cases, um, you know, we'll have to iterate like one by one where it makes sense what. Hmm. I think the work you kind of described before suggested that it would be good if there was like deeper liquidity pools, but like single assets of, of one kind. But yeah, are there any strategies being taken by any networks to actually encourage that? Like, could they ever block? Probably they can't. But like, like, is there any way to, I guess you could, you could highlight one, but like, yeah, is there any way to decide that there is only going to be one canonical version of something on a network? Yeah, so the, the, there are actually a couple of efforts towards that. And I think Frax is a good example of a stable coin, right? And sort of the way that it works is that uh, the team has a canonical representation of Frax on, on different chains, and they authorize different the bridge providers, right? Or interoperability providers to swap their tokens for the canonical representation of this asset, right? So in, in that mm. case, um, all the applications would only list and interact with this canonical representation, and maybe they authorize sort of one or two different paths of routing or delivery of those of those assets to to that chain, and I and I think that's definitely um, you know one of the trends that we're starting to see right now is that unification um, at a again like an application layer where you now trust uh, effectively uh, multiple underlying interoperability stacks to to execute messages on your application specific contract that just mints this canonical representation of the asset. Hmm. I'm wondering, like, how do you actually deploy XLR onto new networks? What is what is the action for you? And maybe actually, before we do that, tell me, where are you now? I know, I mean, there was an announcement that you're kind of bringing Atoms to Moonbeam, I believe. And I thought that was kind of crazy because it was, for me, at least the first time I'm like, oh my God, yeah. there's actually, it's there. Yeah. We've heard about this for a <laughs> while. But, but yeah, so tell us where you are at. And then I want to hear about like how to add more. Yeah, so where we're at, we effectively started the main network rollout, which is a phased rollout where different functionality will go live on the network over the uh, subsequent uh, you know months. Um, mm -hmm. Currently, we connected, uh, I think, something like 10 or 11 chains through the Axel network, uh, some IBC chains like uh, you know uh, Cosmos Hub, um, you know Injective, Osmosis, uh, Terra, and then a bunch of EVM chains um, like Avalanche, like Moonbeam, like Ethereum, like uh, Polygon, and and uh, we enabled various uh, kind of asset transfer use cases around the network. So you can move things like UST, you can move Atom, right, which I was really mm -hmm. excited about, uh, to different EVM ecosystems and actually, you know, use it as a as an on-ramp to get back to Cosmos, right? <laughs> so yeah. now users can finally get the Atom and go back to Cosmos without having to go through a centralized exchange. Um, and there are pools like on Uniswap, right? There are pools on Moonbeam uh, that have been uh, created. So super excited about that. And... Um, in the coming months, we're rolling out more functionality. So kind of the general message passing uh, is going to go live over the coming weeks uh, on the main network. We have you know lots of applications that are that are building in this new environment and and uh, kind of building their cross chain applications. And yeah, the goal for us is to connect uh, you know million chains, right, millions of chains uh, down the line, and th that requires a very thoughtful approach how to scale and how to scale horizontally. Yeah. And uh, we'll we'll tell more about that in the coming months. <laughs> How do you actually set up on these new networks? Like, what are, what are you actually doing on each side? Are you thinking in pairs of two networks connecting between, like, between two networks? Or are you just like, I'm, we're adding a new network to our input and it can go anywhere after that? Great. So never in pairs. I think, you know, the pairwise approach is, uh, you know, again, adds to this fragmentation and liquidity, uh, you know, diversion. So yes, you onboard to the Axelor ecosystem and from there mm -hmm. you get connectivity to everything else that's been previously connected. So huge networking effects and huge compounding effects, right, from that. The way that it works is kind of depends on the ecosystem. So we support multiple protocols, right? We have uh, we support IBC because everything is around Cosmos SDK. So to set up, you know, IBC channel, it's pretty straightforward, right? like 10, 15 minutes, and you set up relayers from there. Right? Uh, similarly, we've done 
everything almost as easily, maybe a little bit more complex, but in a similar fashion to set up connections with EVM chains, right? So to connect an EVM chain, you would deploy a gateway contract there. The validators registered to vote on events from that chain. So they would have to query like a, a light node or a node of that chain. And then a sequence of commands needs to be executed on the Axel network to, to register that chain and uh, kind of create this path to this new chain. Once that path is added, the information can flow to all the other ecosystems that have been previously connected. Hmm. But who does that? Is that your team that's doing that? Or is that is that potentially like external participants who are like, I want my chain to be also hooked up? The goal for us is to make this permissionless, right? And so anybody will be able to do this for now, you know, it is a kind of a, a kind of governance, right, of the chain. And like, you know, a number of folks have to authorize and kind of co-sign the message to be executed on the network. Uh, but yeah, you know, down the line, the goal is that uh, anybody will be able to, to set these things up. Uh, you'll be able to create a connection in an easy way and just talk with other ecosystems from there. Do you not end up with that problem? This is like an old problem that I think I highlighted on the first interview I ever did with Sunny. It was about like, what if one of these chains is super, super toxic and it's not functioning correctly? Potentially like there's a consensus, what do they call it? It's been captured. So like 51% attack or 66% attack if it's proof of stake and like someone's just printing money using Axelar to send these funds elsewhere to trade them. How do you actually prevent that in a, in a totally permissionless way, like in a permissionless system rather? I mean, I think it's a great question. So uh, I think a couple of answers to that. So first of all, I think one, I think that's why it's important to understand that whenever we're talking about cross-chain or interoperability, minimizing the number of hops to get from a source to a destination is critical. Okay. Right. I think like a lot of people have this, you know, view that the blockchains are going to be connected in exactly the same way as like intranet and peer-to-peer -peer networks, right? On the intranet and peer-to-peer -peer networks, your packet takes, you know, 10 to 20 hops going from a source to a destination. Oh, true. In a blockchain world, that would mean you have to make you know, you have to assume 20 networks <laughs> are trusted as your packet goes from a source <laughs> to destination, which is ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. So I think minimizing the number of hops uh, is going to be a key point. Um, and then two, that's why you want to route and deliver your information through networks that have been designed to deal with situations like this, right? And dealing with situations like this, you can have, you know, a number of on-chain and off-chain protocols in some sense, okay? So on-chain protocols, if the chain is malicious, validators, you know, can go and, um, you know, just disconnect their RPC endpoints, right? Or disconnect their relayers and stop processing the message from that chain, right? You can also have uh, kind of off-chain governance where, you know, a committee has to come in and uh, sign a message that pauses transfers in and out of that ecosystem, right? Or uh. pauses the state of that chain on all the other chains that it's been connected to, right? So having a place mm -hmm. and an interoperability network that deals with some of the situations is also quite important where you have these rules and you're thinking through them because at some point these things will happen and uh, you have to have, again, a combination of uh, kind of on-chain and consensus logic that, that you can uh, deal with um, and also off-chain, I would say, kind of a mechanisms to, to prevent some of these things. Yeah. I mean, the governance idea definitely sounds like, you, I mean, it sounds like you could halt it, but could you undo it? Not really, right? Or I guess, no, actually, no, you can't because they live on, at this point, like those assets may have traveled onto other networks that your validator set would have no control over. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that I think undoing any of these things would be, you know, I think pretty hard, right? It's, it's no different than there is like an exploit in a smart contract on Ethereum and somebody managed to steal funds and then they, you know, execute in five minutes and like route it to all the other DEXs and, and centralized exchanges and try to get their money out, right? Mm -hmm. So- uh, You feel like there's other places you could stop this? I think some of these things will have to come kind of at an application or on and off ramps in some sense, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, as an application, you can always uh, kind of delist an asset, for instance, right? If, if you don't trust it anymore. Totally. Uh, if we're talking about this canonical swapping, right, where multiple bridge providers potentially swap to a canonical representation, you definitely can, you know, disconnect one of the paths. Um, and again, from there, if it already traveled through uh, the swapping mechanism, then the applications and like on and off ramps will potentially have to deal with it and, uh, you know, exclude the asset or some of the accounts. So I, I think it's no different than like, you know, a bug in a DeFi application in some sense that uh, kind of similar strategies will have to be taken.
On Axelar, there's no, it's not a smart contract platform itself, but like, would you ever imagine a DEX living on you? Or does it, do you always think of it as living on the sort of native chains? Um, our goal is to empower developers to build anywhere they want, right? And th that means like giving them tools and giving them APIs to go and build on the best platform that's optimized for their use case and optimized for their need. We optimize Axel Network for interoperability, right? And for routing mm -hmm. and for all these functionalities. So, you know, I can't, I guess, predict the future, but um, I think... Yeah, in some sense, the network has been designed with the different goals in mind, right? And uh, mm -hmm. um, our goal is to help scale the ecosystem and empower really developers to make the best choice for themselves. And, and I think through interoperability, you get that. A few weeks ago, we had Georgios on the show talking about Foundry and a sort of testing across. And we like one of the topics was this multi-chain. How do you test across them? I don't know if this is like your problem, but I'm wondering if you think about it because it's obviously like you're just providing the way to move between. You're not necessarily saying that like chain A should be tested this way versus chain B. But yeah, I'm wondering, like, do you offer recommendations to teams who are trying to develop across two networks? I mean, we're definitely going to provide, you know, examples, right, and like a framework. Um, I think, it, I, I do think in some sense, you know, it is our responsibility, right, as a kind of the team that's doing a lot of work in the space to to help developers think about cross-chain and multi-chain world and, and how to do mm. those things. Uh, the, one of the key core differences is that everything becomes asynchronous communication all of a sudden, right? And so whenever you're dealing with this asynchronous communication, you have to think about what happens if the transaction doesn't go through on the destination chain, right? Uh, what happens if it gets reverted? How do you deal with um, kind of fallbacks and things like that? So um, I do think we're going to be adding, you know, examples. I do think we'll we'll provide, uh, you know, tests and frameworks and way for the developers to think about it. Um, and I, I think it'll be a collaborative effort between our, um, you know, developers and our team to to kind of get there. Cool. I mean, a big topic that I think has come up is this idea of just the like arbitrage or hacks, actually. Like, this is where this question kind of, kind of comes from, is given that there's been some very high-profile, very large problems, specifically, I mean, I think wormholes was the largest and most recent, and that was like a pure bailout. It wasn't returned by the hacker. Sometimes you have these hacks where it's like, it's a hack, and it's like, just kidding, they gave it back. But yeah, in that case, it wasn't. So what are you thinking, like, are you not worried that you could fall into the same trap? Do you feel like there's some sort of thing about your system that protects you better? Uh, yeah, so I think there have been actually more hacks, right? After the wormhole, there was the, the hack on the Axie Infinity blockchain, right? That I think like 600 million. Which is right? also a bridge, um, yeah. Which was like a bridge, again, like a centralized bridge by, you know, ran by a couple of folks. So uh, I, I think this is one of the most important problems to solve, right? In some sense, is build yeah. a, a secure infrastructure. And I think, I think, A, you do have to have a strong base for a decentralized protocol, right? So where, again, I think everything, everything comes down to building um, a kind of a permissionless system where anybody can support your protocol, right? Anybody can participate, having the code open source, like people auditing it, people inspecting it, multiple participants kind of contributing to the security of the network collectively, right? In various formats, either by running validators or looking through the code or, you know, testing things. So I think that's critical and that's, I think, quite important. And that's sort of the base of, um, you know, what we're doing at Acceler. And uh, from there, I think it's a, it's a combination of, you know, the right designs, right? The right architecture, the right engineering practices, kind of code audits, and being very thoughtful about everything along the way. Uh, I think we're in the interoperability, we're kind of in the same phase where we were about, you know, a year in DeFi developments, right? Like people hacking left and right, everybody rolling out their, you know, decks, everybody rolling out their, you know, boring and lending application, like everybody kind of races for the market and doesn't care too much. Uh, and so I, I do think it could be done, you know, secure. I do think it can be done uh, well, but it is uh, kind of technically probably the hardest problem we're facing right now. Mm. But uh, that's what makes us excited, excited uh, every day. So, <laughs> I'm also just curious about how you'd actually, how do you incentivize like the token, the validators actually in this context? Because it's not like people are using it for, I'm just curious, yeah, like how, how are the fees working? Are you earning the fees from each network and then translating them into the Axelar token? Like, yeah, I'm just curious how that works. 
Yeah, so the way we build the, um, you know, at least some of the functionality around the token uh, and the kind of general contract calls is that you always pay in one transaction on the source chain. And then the set of services takes that transaction fee and then, you know, converts it to pay transaction fees like on Axelon network or on the destination chain. I see. And then, you know, if there are excess transaction fees, they can go back to the community pool or the validators of the network and things like that. But from a user perspective, it's a, it's super simple. You pay, you know, in the asset that you want on the source chain, um, mm -hmm. either a flat fee or it's sort of dynamically calculated and all the other relay fees and the network processing fees are taken care of for you. How are you bringing that into your, because you're not a smart contract platform like you're you're a blockchain that just has that one native token i guess right and then just is doing the work of passing this information through itself um i mean I, I, there are multiple ways to, to bring it a you know you can always have kind of a proxy contract on the on the source chains right where mm -hmm. you know the, the funds are, are locked for the transaction fees yeah. but b uh we do actually treat the tokens as uh, sort of almost like a first class citizens through Axel network right for the purpose that we we'll want to be able to kind of translate them to IBC messages right that's one of the examples so so you could actually have you know a representation of the tokens that you move in uh, sort of minted on the Axel network as a standard uh, kind of cosmos denomination right and that that asset can be you know dispersed to the validators or used to subsidize all the other transaction fees so there are multiple ways you can deal with it on the source chain, Axel network, destination chain. It just kind of depends on the trade-offs. Which of the networks would you say you're closest to? You've mentioned Cosmos a bunch of times, obviously Ethereum, but like, would you say that your focus right now is at like looking at the Cosmos ecosystem or yeah, are you, are you looking at other networks as well? I mean, I think definitely kind of given the technology rollout, I think, and given what we've done, it's super easy for us to onboard any Cosmos chain and any EVM chain, right? And almost like be one of the, uh, you know, one of the hubs across those two ecosystems of EVM chains and, and IBC chains. And that's why we have kind of a, you know, half a dozen connections across each one of those. But, uh, you know, our goal is to be able to connect everybody right down the line. And so we have uh, kind of a path, how we expand and how we, how we grow the network. Uh, you know, Cosmos to me, you know, in particular is uh, I think I have a lot of respect for, you know, the ecosystem, for the technology that's been built. I think it's been one of the, you know, most valuable stacks, I think, where that allowed people to innovate. And definitely uh, the community itself is very focused on interoperability, right? Um, and I think that's uh, uh, that what allows all these networks to sort of talk to one another and have compounding effects and actually collaborate. So I, I really enjoy kind of working with the, with the Cosmos folks. Do you have plans to potentially deploy on Osmosis soon? So we actually submitted, you know, a proposal, right, to the uh, Osmosis team for uh, supporting uh, kind of bridge functionality for them. There have been a, a few other projects that have submitted the uh, proposals. I think, you know, the team has been evaluating and we had uh, some kind of online uh, panels that we, that oh, we yeah, talked I about. Went, I saw that. I, I really liked that, actually. It was so interesting. <laughs> Sunny was hosting, and it was like three hours long, yep. but it was great. It was like, it's basically, I'm doing something similar, but like episode by episode, spread out over months. He did it in three hours. So we'll we'll link to that if people want to sort of front run me, <laughs> hear what, who I'm going to interview next. But anyway, cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, Sunny and the team, I think they um, kind of publicly said that they think uh, kind of Axler approach is the best technologically what provides for osmosis uh it's still going to be a subject to a governance vote uh, by the osmosis community so we'll kind of wait and see uh what happens there what about polka dot like you just did the moonbeam deployment would you be interested in anything else or did you do that primarily because it's like evm and it's something that you're i mean i guess you have solidity contracts or you have some template that's somewhat easy to deploy to evm but yeah are you looking at other pair chains um, yeah, I think for us, like Polkadot ecosystem is like, kind of forget the technical differences, but I think uh, very exciting because of the connectivity and interoperability they have within their own, uh, you know, ecosystem. So that's why, you know, we connected with Moonbeam. There are a couple other big parachains that I think have EVM compatibility. So we'll kind of see what happens there. And I think 
we'll also see how a lot of the the traffic is routed, right? Is it going to be now, mm. you know, suppose you go from a Cosmos to uh, Polkadot, right? That's like IBC, then Acceler, Acceler to EVM, EVM to, you know, another uh, message format. Um, within, yeah. <laughs> within, I don't know if that's a message format, actually, but anyway. Uh, XCMP or <laughs> what are they called? XCMP. There? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, something like that. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, and then that message format. And so... You know, I think it'll be quite interesting. So one of the next steps uh, for interoperability in general is would be to build this uh, kind of protocols on top of the core pipes in some sense, right? To make it easy mm -hmm. for all these end-to-end flows for the users and applications. So I think um, that would almost require like a service layer above the network to make some of these things easier and, and multi-hop routing in particular. And what about Ethereum and the L2s? This is sort of my last kind of question on networks. Like, yes, they themselves are kind of like they have kind of mini bridges to uh, the main chain often. But yeah, would you imagine bridging between the L2s? Oh, for sure. Right. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of them have asked for it. And, uh, you know, so we're connected to Polygon. Right. And I think we'll connect to, you know, a bunch of others as well. I mean, I think Ethereum in some sense is becoming like uh, another interoperability hub, right? <laughs> Where mm -hmm. you're seeing a lot of the applications, you know, migrate from the main chain to one of these, um, you know, L2s, right? Or side chains. And then Ethereum, what does Ethereum get you? It gets you, you know, security and message uh, relay and transport layer in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it is a very expensive layer, right? no matter what. The transaction fees are there, still uh, ridiculous. Um, you know, we'll see what happens with the proof of stake migration. In, in that process, you know, having Axler as the proof of stake network already, right, uh, allows you to do similar types of functionalities, but uh, in, a, in a much uh, cheaper environment. Mm. So I want to ask you a question about zero knowledge mm -hmm. and sort of the actual ZK as validity proof. Do you have ZK in your stack anywhere? Or do you have plans to have it? I mean, not directly, right? Indirectly, ZK is used like in some of the threshold libraries, right? Uh, in threshold cryptography to prove certain statements. Um, directly, I think it would be quite interesting to use it potentially down the line. Again, for the purpose of optimizing some of the uh, validation, you know, semantics, right? And transaction sizes. So instead of having you know, validators compute either, you know, multi-sigs or threshold cryptography, you can, you can come up, you can think of creating, um, you know, a zero knowledge or a proof, right, that the validators have validated a certain message on the source chain at the sort of consensus layer or, you know, in smart contracts, and then relaying that proof uh, to different chains that we connected with, and then just validating it there, right? So um, mm. I think that'll be quite interesting. I think that would be definitely one of the directions to get us to, you know, many hundreds or even thousands of validators, depending on how optimal you can make this zero knowledge or, or proofs uh, and how efficient you can make the validation logic, right? Uh, definitely something I think uh, worth exploring. And I think the, the second direction, which I'm super excited about, is actually working with privacy-preserving chains, Right. Yeah, that was actually my next question I was about to ask you. <laughs> Great. It's like, what about the privacy part? Because we talked about a bit like the use of the cryptography, but yeah. Yeah, so super excited about that. Uh, you know, we actually just a couple of days ago announced a partnership with Manta Network, right, which is uh, on Polkadot uh, that uses some of the zero knowledge techniques to get uh, privacy. And um, it's super exciting to me because it enables you to send information let's say to a privacy preserving chain, almost like to, you know, a black box, <laughs> do some stuff with that information, right? Like manipulate it, process it, compute it, exchange it. And then you can come out, you know, on the other end, right? And like continue mm -hmm. sending your assets or your information to, to other ecosystems. So I think it will be a really exciting direction to see these uh, privacy preserving chains connected to, to other ecosystems. Would you ever be able to provide privacy within Axelar? I mean, I guess not really. If it comes out the other end, it's sort of public. But yeah, I don't know if you've been thinking about that. Maybe or between two privacy chains, maybe is another way to think about it. Great question. So I haven't thought about it too much. Um, I mean, again, in some sense, it's a proof of stake network like any other. So if you wanted to apply privacy, okay, you have to do like research, what other people have done, uh, kind of what works in the Cosmos stack and uh, with its... Um, Merkle tree implementations and, and all that stuff. And so you can definitely apply it if you wanted to. And, um, you know, I, I think we'll have to, well, I'll have to think more.
Yeah. I mean, I guess Penumbra for Cosmos SDK, they're definitely working on some privacy things, right. something to check out. But um, in terms of that going across, I just sort of want to keep thinking that like so far right now, if you wanted to move from one chain to another, you basically have to decloak to do it, right? Like you have to un- Shield. That's what we should be using. Cloaking, like Star Trek. Why do we use nice. shielding? Sorry, just had a thought. But anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, the like you'd have to basically unshield the asset and then ship it over. Like, there's no way right now to keep it private into the bridge because I guess you need to know the amounts and where it comes from, and like there's probably too much info that isn't yet made. You can't yet make private. So. Yeah, right now there is no way. I mean, I can think of a couple ways of of doing it. So, for instance, you know, if Axel Network supports kind of a MPC protocols, right, then you can have a, a protocol where instead of actually, uh, you know, unshielding your transaction, right, maybe you communicate, uh, you share a secret key to the Axel validators that allows them to privately decrypt the transaction amongst themselves. Nobody has the transaction clear, but it's sort of a secret shared across all of the validators. Do their necessary functions to validate it, right? And compute a message that needs to be posted on the destination chain uh, in a shielded way, right? So uh, I can definitely see, you know, theoretically how this would work. Um, yeah. you know, practically and engineering wise, I think it would be quite an interesting, uh, <laughs> quite an interesting <laughs> to project to do. <laughs> cool. I do have one last question, which is a little bit about the competitive landscape. We started with that. Like I mentioned that, that like, you know, yours was the first project that I'd really understood to act that way. But since then, there's other projects that maybe even existed, but I didn't understand them as being sort of this multi-asset interoperability play. But there are new ones. How do you think about those? How do you see yourself as different from those? Or do you see these projects sort of all kind of headed towards this very similar architecture? Um, no, not at all, right? I think, uh, A, you're still continuing to see a lot of pairwise solutions, which I think, you know, uh, have scalability effects and uh, kind of fragmentation issues that you're going to have to deal with uh, down the line. B, I think a lot of the protocols and there's, a, you know, a number of protocols that have been proposed that kind of rewrite and, and change the, the name of things and kind of obfuscate it and actually doesn't add anything to the security of the cross-chain or interoperability. Um, I mean, I think building a decentralized interoperability protocol that works across different stacks is, again, like very challenging, right? I think mm. um, it, it's, it's a very complex technical problem. Um, I think a lot of people are taking, you know, shortcuts along the way to get to the user experience that I think we've been describing for, for the last year, right? And like pioneered in one of the white papers that we wrote with the gateways and kind of communication across them. You can get to that user experience in a, you know, with centralized backends in some sense, which I think is a mistake and you're going to be run into the security issues. But getting to that user experience with a decentralized backend, I think is a very complex uh, kind of a problem. Of the other solutions, this is a kind of a funny question I've never asked anyone else, but I'm curious how you'll answer it. Um, which is your favorite? <laughs> Which is your favorite of your competitors? Who do you think is like really good? <laughs> I'm gonna try to ask everyone, all the bridge, all the bridging people, this. Uh, great question. So, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> what do you, so you don't want to give, you don't want to say. <laughs> it's such a hard one. <laughs> it, it, it's a hard one. Um... <laughs> Wormhole, Nomad. No, I mean, I think Wormhole is a centralized bridge for all okay. practical purposes, right? Um, I mean, Nomad, I think, explores interesting trade-offs in the safety and liveness assumptions. But I think from a safety and decentralization perspective, uh, it's a step backwards in some sense. Uh, mm. Because I think, you know, they, they introduce liveness assumptions to guarantee safety, which I think is very dangerous for the cross-chain uh, world, given like all the attacks that we're, that we're seeing in the space. Mm. Um there's not a lot of research on, on this, right? On this interoperability, at least protocols that I would consider any any sound or any <laughs> any truthful. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of marketing material and uh, you know 
heuristics proposals out there by some people that don't understand anything about basic liveness and safety properties and trying to market, you know, and go to market with them, uh, which I think is a huge mistake. Uh, so mm-hmm. I actually would love to see, you know, more rigorous analysis on the safety and liveness of the protocols and on the trade-offs and the, you know, uh, distinction between, you know, permissioned or permissionless systems, yeah. uh, which is not something we're, we're seeing a lot in the space. So I would say, you know, it is a hard technical problem. I think a lot of the teams are doing, you know, the best that they can to serve to solve it. But I think we have, you know, the best and the most decentralized approach and the most universal approach that that I've seen to date. So. All right. Well, said like a true businessman. <laughs> All right. But uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'm going to, I am going to try this potentially with other interviews so they can get prepared for that question of who of your competitors do you like the most? Um, well, listen, Sergey, thanks for coming on the show and sharing with us this sort of story of Axelar, the work that you're doing, what makes it unique, and yeah, where you're at. I think it would be really cool to hear kind of what's coming next, and then I think we'll wrap up. So yeah, what is coming next? Yeah, I mean, uh, continuing the network rollout, so various features will go live, like you know, general message passing will go live right on the network across EVM chains, and then we, uh, you know, looking at how to extend it to Cosmos chains as well. So I think that's going to be you know super exciting. Uh, more connections, right, to more networks um, that are not connected, more applications integrated on top of the network. So we have a huge pipeline of. Everybody from cross-chain DEXs, you know, NFTs, wallets that are building around the network. So I think that would be, you know, super exciting. And um, yeah, I think the, the goal is to get us to a world where people or users don't have to think about multi-chain, right, or cross-chain. I think these things have to be obfuscated and taken away uh, from the user interaction. So to me, that's the biggest uh, goal and that's the biggest, uh, you know, point to work towards. Cool. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Awesome. It was great being here, Anna. Thanks. I want to say thank you to Tanya, the podcast producer, Henrik, the podcast editor, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.